Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we can gather this evening in your name. We can come together as a, as a family, as a group who are united by our faith in you. Lord, thank you that you are here this evening, that we can be assured of your presence. And thank you that we don't have to jump through any hoops not in worship, not in the sermon or anything, that we can just be here with you and abide in your presence and be open for your word. I pray that you will open our, our hearts and our minds this evening for what you want to show us and tell us and teach us. Lord, I also pray for everyone in our community who's struggling to get jobs. The, the president for, uh, for wisdom in answering all the questions on the, um, the State of the Nation address in Parliament and yeah, just in general for the president, for, for the government, for, for wisdom in making their decisions and for integrity. Lord, I also pray for Marley and Ben and for their car that's gone in for an assessment. Yeah, I pray that you will provide in what they need. If it's your will, that it will be something small, and if it's something big, that you will still provide for them. Um, yeah, so that they can also use this car um, to your glory in their lives. And yeah, I just pray for your blessing over dialogue, over this community. I thank you for the the bond that we have between us, which is, which is you. And I pray that that will deepen, that each one of us will deepen in our faith and in our trust and in our love for one another. Be close to us now as we go into worship and actually into prayer as we speak with you in, in music and as we praise your name as we make your name high. Yeah, we love you, Lord Jesus, and we enjoy being in your presence and seeing you in the things around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, so we are, we've been looking at, at, at how how technology, how online, how social media and all of the various technologies, how it's how it's affecting us spiritually. And today we come to a very crucial one, and I'm going to share little snippets of, of this phenomenon. And then in about 10 or so minutes, we're going to get to Scripture. Now, I know a bunch of you guys are proper Bible nerds, and you get a little bit fidgety and get a twitch if we don't get into the Bible. But just relax. We'll get there. So... In 2015, there was a dentist. I mean, there are many dentists today still. But in 2015, there was a dentist by the name of Walter Palmer. And he paid 50,000 US dollars to hunt a lion in Zimbabwe. 
And he came, and uh, unfortunately for him, the lion he hunted had a name. His name was Sissel, named after a beloved colonial figure. And, and, uh, and, and there was a team of Oxford researchers, and they, uh, they traced and tracked uh, Sissel and studied him, and then soon, this guy, Walter Palmer, Palmer was the, the most hated person in the world. The US president, the British prime minister, they all gave a statement on this thing. And eventually, the, the court threw it out. It wasn't considered illegal, but it just, it just created such outrage among, uh, uh, among so many people, to such an extent that Walter Palmer received several death threats on his house because somehow the social media mob found his home details and they posted it online and soon Lion Killer was posted on, uh, not posted, was uh, graffitied onto his garage door and he had to close down his dental practice. All right. If you want to read up about this, you can go to the Wikipedia page, The Killing of Cecil the Lion. All right. Uh, a couple of years ago, Helen Ziller tweeted, not everything of colonialism was bad. The online mob descended, massive division in the DA, massive division in South Africa, and the public protector even found her guilty of inciting racial hatred and uh, violence and, and that she violated the constitution in the process. When Uist died, Uist on the Vestation, the rugby player, I know you guys don't know who that was, but uh, there was a guy called Rian Lucas, and uh, he shared a little meme of a guy who's very excited, and he says, this is me every time I hear a, a white guy dies. So it's a, a person that is very excited um, about white people dying, and uh, Eusebius MacKaiser, the, the famous radio host, he even just, he just retweeted what Rian Lucas said, which was just hashtag shame him, and shame him we did. Uh, there was another kid, uh, he was here at, uh, at UP, his name is Luvuyo Menziwa, and he was, a, he was an EFF guy and he tweeted, he really wants a bazooka so that he can kill white people. And again, the tweet surfaced and it trended and people were very angry and uh, was brought in front of the SA Human Rights Commission. Everybody was angry for a, for a good while. 2018, a guy by the name of Adam Katsavelos uh, shares a video of himself on a Greek island and he says it's very nice here because there are no black people here, although he didn't use the word black people. And the activists then started to uh, just send, uh, descend on this guy as well. And what, what is interesting is that they even approached the school where his kids go to school and demanded that, he, that they be expelled from, from the school. And the business that he worked for, which is a small part, it's like a family business, uh, closed down pretty much um, because, of, because of his actions. And uh, I mean, some of you guys might know of J.K. Rowling, um, the, the author of Harry Potter. She uh, took exception with the fact that people refer to women as people who menstruate as a way of differentiating them from transgender women as opposed to the offensive word biological women. And she said, that's not okay. And the online mob has not stopped um, saying that what she's doing is, is, is transphobic, etc., etc., etc. Today there's a term that we call offense archaeology. 
offense archaeology. So basically what that means is that if you become a public figure, then automatically you've got all of these freelance offense archaeologists who just go into your social media history and they make sure that they can find some dirt on you. So there's this lady, Bianca Squinby, and she was a hopeful, I think, for the 2020 Miss South Africa. And then the archaeologists did some digging and they found that uh, she, she just sh shared these vulgar tweets that a little bit sounds like she's a rapper, um, but she uses the N-word and, and bitch and, and just, you know, a bunch of words that I guess you shouldn't uh, put next to each other. And she had to withdraw from, the, from the South Africa. She was 13, however, when she tweeted those things, but nonetheless, she is not Miss South Africa today. And sometimes the archaeologists do not even stop at your sin. They go to your parents' sin as well. 2018, there's a guy called Connor Daly. He's a NASCAR driver where they take a left turn for a very long time. And, uh, and, and Connor, Connor Daly lost, uh, lost many of his sponsors because his father used the N-word in a radio interview in 1980. And apparently he came from Ireland and he didn't know that it's illegal. I don't know what, what, what the background is, but the sponsors withdrew because of what his father did uh, 40 years prior to that. Now these are just several examples of cancel culture at work. And what you find in cancel culture is that people are very passionate about justice, people are very passionate about shame, about sin, but very anti-forgiveness as well. And we can see the legacies of guys like Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu falling sort of in the crossfire of, of, of this movement. So at one point they were hailed as heroes globally, but today uh, Mandela and Tutu are considered sellouts by, by many, and people prefer more the radical stance of, of others. Likewise, at one point, Martin Luther King Jr. was considered this, this hero. But today, many, many, especially black Americans and activists in that part of the world, prefer a Malcolm X, for example, who took a more radical stance. This is one line how, how people, uh, how one person at least, describes the Black Lives Matter movement in, South Af in, in, in America. She says, uh, Black Lives Matter is not your granddaddy's civil rights movement. This movement is angry. All right. So we can see this movement away from forgiveness, away from these, these various figures, and it's, it's very focused on sin, it's very focused on justice, on, on online shaming, etc., etc., etc. If you want to understand this fading of forgiveness better, then maybe this little extract from, from an article might help you. This is a response to the Me Too, the Me Too movement, and it says the following. The notion that the victims of crime, oppression, and sexual assault must forgive their oppressors piles more oppression and harshness on the victim. Insisting that she forgives plays into the sickness of patriarchal, misogynistic, male supremacist religions that blame women. Forgiveness is overrated. It heals neither the body nor the mind. Let the criminal ask his gods if there be, be, if there be any for forgiveness. Instead of, talking about uh, in, instead of talking about victims must forgive, we should be talking about tattooing the words rapist, sexual predator on the foreheads of criminals. Now, 
This is the type of rhetoric a lot of people are saying that we need to move away from forgiveness. Now, why, why is forgiveness, why, why is cancel culture such a thing? Why is forgiveness under threat? Now, there are several reasons. I'm just going to propose a few. The one has been well documented. When we are anonymous or when we think we're anonymous, we are really mean. Okay, and it reveals something of the human heart. And if you don't believe me, just just look at yourself and how cocky and aggressive you are behind your steering wheel versus on the sidewalk. Okay, so when you've got the protection of the windscreen, when you've got the protection of this, the, the, the steering wheel, you are shouting insults at all these people. But if you bump into somebody on the way to the coffee station, they, then you're very polite. So this anonymity just reveals something of what goes on in the human heart. That's one. The second thing is that there's a philosophy that is deeply inspired by a, a French philosopher called Michel Foucault. And, and these philosophers uh, coined the term, actually it goes back to, to Nietzsche, um, that, uh, that when we use a word like forgiveness, that is just a power play. And they, they have this lens, what they call the hermeneutic of suspicion. So when you come with a word like forgiveness, the, the, the reality is that that is just another word that you are trying to use to maintain your power over me. That's, that's what forgiveness is. So when anybody comes with religion or forgiveness or redemption or grace, all those words are just different ways to maintain your power over me. So this hermeneutic of suspicion is another reason why forgiveness has faded. Something else is what has been called the rise of the therapeutic. I know this sounds you know, uh, high level and whatnot, but it, it really isn't. So recently, and, and I mean we've spoken about this plenty of times, what has what has replaced theologians and philosophers in the last couple of decades? Psychologists, right? So the pop psychology that is preached um, in many parts of the world is that if you want to know who you are, you have to go inside yourself. You have to be true to yourself. Um, you, you, shouldn't do, you shouldn't do anything that makes you unhappy, all right? Do what makes you happy. Every second movie, that's pretty much the premise uh, of, of that movie. Now, here's the problem. Forgiveness is something that we need to maintain relationships with each other. So if you want to foster community, forgiveness is crucial, because otherwise there will be no community. But if we preach that the self and what makes you happy is the most important thing, then forgiveness doesn't really make me very happy. So unless forgiveness makes you happy, then you can do it. But if it doesn't make you happy, and very often it doesn't make you happy, then forgiveness will be cast out. Does that make sense? The rise of the therapeutic, all right? That is the, 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 the me, the, the, authentic, the authentic me. Um, I must do what, what is good for, for me. And often, we don't think forgiveness is good for me because it's fun to hold on to righteous, my self-righteousness or my anger or gossip, etc., etc. And then there's something else that I, I, I love talking about and uh, we can't do it justice tonight, but the fact that our society that we find ourselves in has been heavily influenced by, by the church by Christianity in, many, in, in more ways than we know it. So words like shame, words like guilt, words like sin, words like justice, these are primarily theological terms. But today they are not used theologically, all right? They are used by, let's call it the secularists, 
um, with, with as much vigor, but they have conveniently, or rather inconveniently, lost words like forgiveness and redemption. All right? So they use a very limited theological vocabulary, and it becomes quite dirty um, when you look at it. And uh, t trying to articulate this in a, a much better way than I can, Alan Jacobs is a literary scholar. He says this, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serve as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. That quote sums up a lot of our current graceless culture, doesn't it? And uh, you, you see many people trying to, as soon as they have offended this graceless culture, they try their best to just redeem themselves. And an example of this is the, the Formula One driver, Lewis Hamilton. He's uh, apparently a, a, an amazing sportsman and, and apparently a lovely personality as well. And uh, he, he tweeted or something, social media, a video of his nephew who was dressed up like a girl. But, I mean, that's what kids do. So maybe it was three or four. And he says, oh, this is so sad. I wanted him to be a racing car, you know, driver like me. But now he's doing this. And then the transphobic um, a mob obviously didn't like it. And he apologized, he tweeted, he says, I'm sorry. I said, I'm really sorry. I'm said, I'm really, really, really sorry. I didn't think about my actions, etc." And then he appeared on the cover of GQ in a dress. And uh, he, with, with no shirt, it was this, it's this very bizarre thing. He still looks hot. I mean, it's Lewis Hamilton uh, and six pack and whatnot. So it's, it's still a GQ-ish little thing, but in a dress. And then with the title of the article, Making Amends, Making Amends. That is the type of thing in this graceless culture that it seems you need to do to actually receive redemption and forgiveness. But even that is not guaranteed. Let's read some Bible, shall we? Okay, there we go, there we go. All right, Matthew, Matthew 18, Matthew 18 from verse 21. Matthew 18 from verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. 
He refused and went, uh, and, and, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, they had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right. Now, in the rabbinic literature of the day, the answer to the question of how many times should you forgive was three. Three. Rabbis were big baseball fans, but strike three and then you're out. Now, Peter is obviously listening to Jesus and he picks up that he really is into this forgiveness thing and probably trying to impress Jesus. He says, so Jesus, how, how much should we forgive? Perhaps seven? That's four times more than what the rabbis are saying and it's a holy number, okay? So you, 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 Peter is he's pushing out his, his, his chest like that, just waiting for the badge. Uh, uh, seven times, huh? Am I right? Am I right? And, and Jesus says, no, seven times 70, which amounts to 490. But that's not the point, okay? So some of you guys are sort of keeping tally and 491, you're out, boom. <laughs> Biblically speaking, I don't have anything left to say to you. No, that's not the, that's not the point. So, so it's, it's, it's a Hebraic way of saying, uh, or Aramaic, or, or it's a Jewish way of saying again and again and again and again. But here's something else. There is, uh, well, 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 let me say this. Why it is important to forgive again and again and again is because when we hear about forgiveness earlier in the book of Matthew, it is in uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount and it is in the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer we read, uh, give us our daily bread and forgive us our, our sins even as we forgive those who sinned against us. All right? So bread and, and, and forgiveness is connected very closely together. But bread is something that you need daily as is forgiveness. It is not a once-off. If you eat bread daily, you can't say, well, I think I've had my bread. It's not a once-off event. It is a daily event. All right, so forgiveness is something that is essential to life, as is bread, as is water. All right, but something else is happening. Matthew is whispering something else in our ear with this seven times 70. Seven times 70. Why is Jesus doing a little, uh, you know, a little math trick there? Seven times 70. Remember the Jews were, were just swimming in Scripture. So they, uh, they could pick up on, on little hyperlinks that Jesus was, was sending to them to very quickly. And, and this one takes us all the way back to Genesis 4. Now, any good Jew would know that we have harmony in the Garden of Eden. Everything is good. Everything is shalom. There is righteousness. There is justice. There is uh, it, it, there's harmony, all right? And then Adam and Eve sin, and then they, they, their sons start by the brother killing the brother, and it's just this mess, all right? It is this mess of vengeance. It is this, this human dysfunction on, in, at full display. And then there's a descendant of Cain, 
called Lamech. And Lamech says this in Genesis 4. Now, maybe just a little bit of context. When, when Cain is confronted with what he did by killing his brother, he says, ah, oh, the punishment is, is too hard to bear. And he never apologizes. He just says, ah, oh, the punishment is too, too hard to bear. And then God says, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Um, if anybody punish you, I will punish them, them seven times. I, would put, I will put a mark on your head and, uh, so that you will not just be a drifter. So he's, he's giving Cain mercy when Cain really does not deserve mercy. So Lamech, his descendant, reflecting on his grandfather Cain and what happened to him, says this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. All right? Now, this became a sort of archetype of just proper human dysfunction. So what was intended as a little bit of grace in a messed up situation has now been turned into, oh, you think Cain will be avenged, Lamech will be avenged, but I won't wait for God to avenge me, I will avenge myself. So if somebody strikes me, um, I will kill that man. If, uh, I, will, I, I will kill them if they, if they just strike me. So this guy is just going way beyond the, the measure of, of justice. And the rest of scripture, to a certain extent, is actually telling us how the logic of Lamech is playing out when, when mankind just take vengeance. And the rest of history, by the way, is pretty much you know, vengeance with vengeance, okay? So what Jesus is saying, that is how the kingdom of man works. But I'm going to start the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, we don't take vengeance seven times 70. We forgive seven times 70. There's a new king in town, and there are a few new rules. Are you guys with me with, with the seven times 70 and what is, what is, um, what's being said there? All right. Jesus goes on to tell a story. And this story is a humorous story. You guys didn't laugh, but his first audience definitely would have laughed for a couple of reasons. One, the guy owes 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a metric system that they used back then, which is, it, it is a lot. So, for instance, Judea, I, I think, I'm speaking on the correction, but Judea, when they paid tax to Caesar, paid about 100 talents, okay? So that's a whole, like, semi-country paying tax to the empire, and they can only muster about 100 talents. So it's another way of saying there was a servant who owed his master a gazillion dollars, okay? It, it, it is an incalculable uh, amount. There's, there's nobody, not Egypt, not if you put all of these empires co- together, will you find 10,000 talents, all right? So it, it, is, it is absolutely incalculable. And then what does the servant say? Oh, have mercy with me. I'll pay you back. I owe you a gazillion, I'll pay you back. I'm good for it, I'm telling you. So the guys would have said, oh, that's funny. I mean, um, our whole province could only get about 100 talents, you know, last year. What's the chances? So, and this guy, he says, no, I'll I'll, um, have patience with me. I'll I'll pay it back. And then that servant goes on and he's refused to forgive 100 denarii. Now, a denarii was a minimum day's wage. And 100 denarii, that's, what, three months' work, basically. That is a reasonable number, that is calculable. So what we have here is the one guy forgiving an incalculable amount and the other guy refusing to forgive 
a reasonable amount. Are you guys with me? The logic, friends, is quite simple. What Jesus is trying to tell us in story form is we must forgive the small stuff because God forgave the big stuff. And that's it. We must forgive the small stuff because God forgave the big stuff. And throughout the, the rest of the New Testament, Paul and others are reflecting on this. So Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Now friends, let's try and unpack this notion of forgiveness. What is it? As Christians, we think we should forgive, or I, I, rather, let me say this. As Christians, we do not forgive primarily because it might release us from bitterness or it might lead to psychological flourishing. The primary reason why we forgive is because God forgave. That's it. That's the logic. Not because it works for me. That might be a nice side effect, and I'm very happy if you're not bitter anymore. But the fact of the matter is we forgive because God forgave. Now, there's something else that we need to understand about, about forgiveness and how it works. When, in, in the parable, we see that, that it's a gift that is given. It is, a, it is the gift of forgiveness. But whenever you give somebody a gift, a gift costs money, all right? unless it's a really bad gift. Okay? But, but, but if it's a gift that the other person is going to take, it's going to cost something. All right? And in the, in, in the parable, the gift that the landlord gave the servant was the biggest gift you can ever imagine. You know, to, to, not, uh, to, to not allow him to pay his debt, he is, as a matter of fact, footing the bill. Does that make sense? So it is a huge gift that he is giving the person. And what we need to understand is when we forgive, the logic of forgiveness is that it will always cost the victim something. It will always cost the victim something. So let's make it practical for a, for a moment. If somebody has wronged you and you are struggling to forgive that person, and maybe you do not want to forgive that person because it is actually quite nice to hold on to your self-righteousness, let's be honest. It is nice to gossip about that person. It is, it is nice sometimes to hold on to that anger and to maybe think and ponder and, and uh, stir a little bit in that anger, right? But if you forgive, you have to walk away from that. You have to leave that behind. You are not allowed to hold on to any of, of that. You cannot character assassinate that person who have wronged you. That is what forgiveness looks like. And it's going to cost you something. It will cost you something. And, and friends, there's... There's a beautiful little bit of logic in. So if I've lost you for the last um, however long we've been busy, just try and focus for this bit. Have you ever heard somebody ask, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why, if he wanted to forgive us, why didn't he just forgive us? Why did he go to a gory cross? That just sounds very unreasonable. Maybe this helps answer that, helps answer, answer that question. Forgiveness... In the parable, forgiveness in our own lives always costs the victim something. So if it is forgiveness at a cosmic scale, then the cross shows us that it cost God everything. Does that make sense? If forgiveness always costs the victim something, then the cross is a monument to show us that this forgiveness isn't free. Somebody has to foot the bill, and it cost Jesus everything. Are you with me? That is the beauty of, of the cross. Cosmic forgiveness came at a cosmic 
cost. It is not cheap. All right. Now, by worldly standards, this sounds very unfair. It, it makes a lot of sense that people are rejecting forgiveness. I can completely understand it. But bear in mind that when you forgive, many people say it's just weak, it's just stupid. Um, but bear in mind that when you forgive, you also condemn. You, you also condemn when you forgive. It is not just rolling over. There is condemnation that is implicit in forgiveness. To give you an example, when Lorraine and I fight, which is every Tuesday, we... We, we, have a, we have a little fight and neither, and neither of us, <laughs> fight night, uh, neither of us budge, okay, on a particular issue. So it usually got to do with cleanliness and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I like the house clean. She's a mess. You know how it is. And, and, uh, and then there's now a little... A little standoff between us and I do not want to concede anything and I said I think you're being unfair and she says well I think you're being selfish and you know that's 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 the kind of thing so nobody is conceding and then what I do after about 20 minutes of silence I'll go back to her and I say Lorraine I thought about this I forgive you I forgive you <laughs> now why why that reaction because you realize that by saying I forgive you I am blaming her I am condemning her. And you know what? She doesn't like it when I, when I say, I forgive you for, for, for whatever um, the, the offenses that I at least think that she's, she's uh, offended me. Um, the fact of the matter is that when you forgive someone, you are blaming that person. All right? It's not rolling over. It is blaming that person. You are recognizing that something went wrong, okay? But you are blaming, but not punishing. You blame the person, you condemn the action, but you do not punish the person. But here's the thing. Maybe you can, you can now say, okay, uh, I, can, I can get on board with this forgiveness thing because you know, if I can blame somebody I'm in, and uh, maybe it releases me from a little bit of bitterness. But that is sort of the pop psychology version of, you know, uh, Oprah or Dr. Phil. They will say, yeah, forgive. It's going to be good for you. Um, and you can blame somebody else. I don't know. But that is not the biblical understanding of, of forgiveness. Because you see, when, when, when Jesus says we need to forgive and what, what the result of forgiveness is, it is not inner peace. It is reconciliation. That should be the result of forgiveness. It shouldn't make you feel better. It shouldn't make you feel fuzzy. It shouldn't make you feel peace. It's great if you feel peace. But that is not the end result for the Christian. It is reconciliation. Forgiveness is very much like an actual gift that you send to someone. A very expensive gift, depending on, on the offense that you are forgiving. And a gift works like this. You have to give it to somebody, they need to accept the gift, and they need to open the gift, all right? That's how gifting works. Forgiveness is the same. So in other words, you have to send it to somebody, they need to open it, and if they accept that forgiveness, then there is reconciliation, and then the whole forgiveness cycle is almost complete. But without that, from the Christian understanding of forgiveness, it is not, it is not quite complete. Does that make sense? Let me go on. It sounds very difficult because not only do you, do you have to forgive these people, you must 
want at least to be reconciled with these people. And it is, it is super difficult. Now there is a, another uncontestable maxim that is floating around that says, I will forgive, but I cannot forget. I, I will forgive, but I cannot forget. Okay, bad luck. The Bible says we must forget as well. So uh, Hebrews 10, 17 says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. This is God speaking. But remember how we said that we need to forgive as God forgave? Well, we need to forget as God forgot. All right? So the end result of forgiveness is oblivion. You must be reconciled with that person or at least want to be reconciled with that person. And then eventually that offense must slip into oblivion. You do not, uh, you, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. It has disappeared from your memory. That is the end of forgiveness. And it sounds impossible, doesn't it? And you might be right, but if we have a fighting chance of, of being a, a person that can forgive, as we, we just described, then you have to be in a community that forgives. That is the only, that's the only chance you have. Forgiveness is a bit like a practice. It's like a spiritual practice that you, uh, that you in, in the same way that praying doesn't come easy, it is sometimes you pray before you, you, you pray because you have to pray, even if you do not experience intimacy with God. Likewise, you give forgiveness even if you do not feel like you want to give forgiveness. It is a spiritual practice, right? And, 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 and we have to practice forgiveness, but it is something that we have to do in community. You see, if, if we come to church and Sunday after Sunday, Bible study after Bible study, we, we reflect on stories of forgiveness from Scripture. We reflect on the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Not only that, we share life together and we realize that uh, Tani Christine is maybe having to forgive somebody who really wronged her, and we are listening to her story, and, it's, and it, it might be difficult, but we learn from from her story and we, we, uh, we take great courage from her ability to forgive that person. Likewise, if we are not emotionally involved, our egos are not involved in a particular situation, what do we have to do? We have to be the voice of Christian reason that says, I know you don't want to hear this, but you're going to have to forgive. And he says, well, you don't know what that person did to me. I don't. I'm not you, so I'm, I'm not as involved as you are, but I'm afraid that is... What, what Christ demands is that you forgive this person, that you eventually forget uh, this offense, and that you eventually reconcile with this person. Can you see that the only chance you have of, of being able to live up to the standard of forgiveness that the Bible calls us to is if you are in a community of fellow forgivers? Does that make sense? But I've got good news for you. The fact that we are a church and the fact that we come from different walks of life and we are not natural friends. We are here because we like Jesus. Maybe we are drawn here because we like uh, the aesthetic in here. The, the, the point is there are different reasons why people, um, people come here, but we are not natural friends, meaning that you will be hurt here at church. And that's great because we want to give you the exercise of forgiveness, right? So if you come here, then I will offend you so many times um, with what I say. And guys, you're welcome. Um, 
I don't, don't, don't mention it, you know. Uh, and you're going you're gonna to be with broken people and you're going to practice forgiveness. And that is why we have to be a forgiving community and why we have to practice forgiveness because, well, we have to forgive each other. That's why, uh, what's his name? Um, G.K. Chesterton said, uh, God says that you must love your enemy and you must love your neighbor because most of the time they are the same person. Now, I want to read you a quote from, from D.A. Carson. He reflects a little bit more on this, uh, on, on this the, the whole notion of how we as a church community need to practice forgiveness. He says this, The reason why there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education or common race or common income levels or common politics or common nationality or common accents or common jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In this light, we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That is the only reason why John 13, 34 to 35 makes sense when Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus because it is a display for Jesus' sake of mutual love among social incompatibles. Friends, we started off by looking at the cancel culture that is just rife in, in our society and the fact that there's just a, we, we live in a graceless culture there's a total lack of forgiveness as a matter of fact there's a contempt towards forgiveness and the church must stand as a light in this graceless culture we must show a different way to a world that is stuck as Douglas Murray says stuck in cycles of Christian theology they are stuck with guilt and shame and sin, but they have no way of getting out of there because they don't know how to make sense of redemption and forgiveness. So that's why we as a church have to rebel against this current culture, and we need to preach and we need to practice radical forgiveness. And then if people look at us, hopefully, hopefully, they will see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we realize that forgiveness is one of the most difficult things that we can do. But we also acknowledge that it is the most difficult thing that you have already done. Many of us, Lord, are, are not thinking of forgiveness in abstract terms this evening. When we talk about somebody who's wronged them, then they've got a very specific person in mind. And Lord, it is, it is our prayer this evening that you can somehow, in a supernatural way, just help us to take a step on this journey of forgiveness. Lord, it is, it is so difficult. And that is why we need you and we need to have other people around us who follow you. And I pray, Lord, that we will really encourage each other to be 
fellow forgivers. Oh Jesus, we also know that sometimes we aren't the victims, we are the perpetrators. And I pray that we will also be in the healthy habit of examining our own hearts and trying to find our own sin, trying to find out where we have violated somebody or offended somebody. And if we can figure out who or what it is, then help us to stop whatever we are doing and to try and reconcile with that person. Make us introspective as perpetrators and gracious as victims. Yeah, Lord Jesus, wherever we might be this, this evening on this topic of forgiveness and anger, I pray that you will meet us there, Lord. I pray that you will that you will minister to our hearts, that you will, that you will ingrain your cross in our hearts, and even when it doesn't make sense to forgive, that you will, that you will remind us of, of the great reality of the cross and the fact that we are in the grip of that grace. Help us, Lord, to forgive other people as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.